we should have 100 boats on the water. Um, I think it's the most tangible one. So we're a company running cargo out in the water. We have a, we have a swarm of ships. That's Max Olsen, a co-founder of Freightfish and this is Wildpass. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world, the investors who back them. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. Freightfish is a New Zealand-based company with a vision to deliver goods anywhere in the world in five to six days, and for half the cost of their competitor in the air. They're doing this by creating autonomous hydrofoil ships, which is essentially a Batmobile on water. Max Olson, the co-founder of Freightfish, covers his journey that led him to it. The most important principle in quick iteration cycles and some of the benefits of building the business from New Zealand. Later on, we'll hear from Samantha Wong, a general partner of Blackbird Ventures. She reveals why Blackbird loves robots as a service what a good hire looks like in startups and how to attract that talent. Now, before we get into it, we have a very special announcement. With very full hearts, we launched the new philanthropic arm of Blackbird Ventures, the Blackbird Foundation. It's been five years in the making and represents our belief in the limitless potential of young people. Gonna pass you over to Blackbird's creative director and head of Blackbird Foundation, Joel Connolly, to tell you more. Thanks, Mason. Has it been five years though? Wow. That's gone quickly. does not feel like that. But you're right. My heart is full and I'm excited to tell you a bit more about the Blackbird Foundation. Our mission is to supercharge creativity and imagination in young people. Everything special that humans have ever done began with an idea. Imagination allows us to conceive of things that are not yet possible or that do not exist. Every one of us has an imagination And we want to partner with people and organizations who believe in the importance and power of creativity. Through creativity, young people find their passions. They become interested, lifelong learners. Creative people are more comfortable with uncertainty and they aren't so afraid of failure. These are all really important things to master and we believe they are some of the most valuable skills young people can develop. Think about it. They are heading into a world that is packed full of uncertainty. The problems they will face are global in nature and hyper-complex. To kick things off, we're giving away a series of community grants to young people who are working to help their peers find their passions. You could be teaching maths on TikTok, running a space camp. You might have a YouTube channel about climate change, whatever. If you are inspiring others to find their passions and their purpose, we want to hear from you. And if there are any other people out there listening who care about the limitless potential of young people and the power of creativity, I want to talk to you. Hit me up. Thank you so much, Mason. Back to you. Let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Max Olson. Booyah. You're in. It says you're the host now, um, which is good. Thank heavens. <laughs> we, are, we are technically recording, but anyway, I'm... Absolutely thrilled to get to know a bit more about you and your story. When did you start getting interested in things? Let's rewind back to your childhood. Yeah, let's rewind. It was like, uh, it was, I think it started, I mean, I, I don't know how far back we want to go here. It was the very it's, first it's, memory it's, that you started, uh, that you were. <laughs> it was, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a balsa wood radio controlled yacht that, that, like I think my dad got got me some plans for a balsa wood yacht for Christmas, and I just remember being just incredibly bored because I thought that the first step was to build the entire balsa wood yacht. You know, like step one, build the yacht. But it turns <laughs> out, step one was to sort of you know lay out all the frames of the hull, and I just had no idea. I was way too young. It was a terrible idea um, to to try and get me interested <laughs> in doing that at that age. But that sort of grew. So we we ended up having all this like sort of balsa wood around and. Then one day I sort of just like decided that I'd, you know, I, could, I could I could build a boat. So I started trying to, you know, essentially just teach myself how to use a craft knife and some balsa wood to, you know, build little balsa wood boats. And that sort of turned into this childhood obsession with like radio controlled boats. Were you always living by the water? 
Yeah, I, th- I think actually, yeah. I, like, I've where did you drive been... this balsa wood boat? Uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was actually, it was actually up, um, up near where I am now. It's, you know, um, up in Tutukaka and Whangarei. And uh, yeah, it was on a little, it was on this little sort of stream next to our place. Uh, yeah, I actually realized last year I went into uh, Benalla in Australia, which is north of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And that was the furthest I'd ever been from the water. And that was last year. And that was like, wow. It it's like, it's like a few hundred kilometers. Whoa, this is weird. You know, I'm like, this is the furthest I've ever been from the ocean. Uh, Did you lose so yourself? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I lost myself and I found myself. I don't know. Um, um, and um, took a quick detour to Bonnie Doon on the way, which is where I found myself. Um, I couldn't resist going for a quick, quick stop by. And uh, yeah, so I always had this sort of like this radio control boat stuff. And I decided that, you know, Early on, I, I wanted to be a, I, at some stage I decided I wanted to be a naval architect, which I didn't end up doing. I really should have actually, it would be pretty useful right now. And then it was sort of like high school. I sort of saw this poster on a wall for one of the universities in New Zealand. And it, yeah, it was like mechanical, come study mechanical engineering. And, and I had a, had a picture of a boat, you know, racing down a river on it. I was like, oh man, maybe you should study mechanical engineering. I think I could play with boats or whatever sort of go to uni and realize that most of mechanical engineering is not about building boats at all. Most of you end up going and building air conditioning systems or whatever else. Um, mm. Which was, uh, I think, a little bit disheartening for the first you know, year or so of uni, thinking that, yeah, the odds of ending up doing something really, really, you know, cool and interesting to do with, you know, flying machines is just kind of, you know, near impossible. Well, where did you get your energy from during uni? Oh, I was a terrible uni student. I wouldn't say I had energy. So I, I actually, year one, I actually failed two papers at uni. You know, first year, got in there, didn't know how to study at all. You know, I just had, like, I had no idea how to study. And, you know, naturally you go through that sort of denial thing where you're like, it's not the problem. The problem isn't that I don't know how to study. The problem is that, you know, you know, this isn't for me or whatever, which is just like, it was just crap. Um, I was just being an idiot. And see, so yeah, it failed two papers in first year. It took half a year off, finished off those two papers, you know, like second part of the next year, got into second year engineering, struggled, like struggled through mainly because I just didn't study anything until I, until I met another guy who sort of, in a way, took me under his wing a bit and, and taught me how to study. And the swap was kind of that I would teach him all the high end sort of engineering stuff that mm. got a bit lost on him. And he would like sort of whip me in, into shape um, and make sure that I was studying and wouldn't let me, you know, take off home and, and not study, taught me exactly what we had to do. And, and that sort of took me from being, you know, like a, I'm talking like B's and B's and C's to, to an A plus student. And I think like the, the crux of that is that, you know, you find, you know, like it's like-minded people and anything that you do that sort of give you that energy to go and do it, um, mm. whether it's in, you know, hobbies or or study or work you know it's working around other people that sort of you know want to do whatever you're doing and you like hanging out with that sort of makes it makes it worthwhile 100 percent. i think one of the biggest things for me when i was in especially year 12 i was kind of annoyed that uh school didn't take the time to help me figure out my operating system and when you get into uni you're really isolated and uh, it sounds like for you, you were able to find a a helpful partner that enabled you to get your operating system down packed so you could actually do what you needed to do and, and get the marks you needed. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, I think no, school definitely doesn't 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 give you any of that. Um, mm. Even uni, I think most people get through uni and probably still haven't still haven't necessarily found that, which is a bit of a shame. And like, I very nearly. I very nearly didn't, you know, like the end of first year, it was just like pretty crushed and was like, ah, oh, you know, uni's, uni's not for me. Mm. I think I should go do something else. I didn't really know what something else would be at all. But yeah, it was very close to like, you know, it was bordering on, you know, am I going to go back to university or not? Which seems, you know, a lifetime ago now. Um, and obviously kind of, I think I made the right choice <laughs> to go mm. back because then I sort of met, I met, I met Craig who sort of taught me how to study and then ended up founding Halter with Craig um, what was Holter? Then, 
Well, it's Halter. So Halter's a previous company I co-founded with Craig, this guy I met at uni, and um, develops collars for dairy cows to sort of um, manage and, and move herds around, you know, all from your phone. Um, and so that, that's, I founded that with him. I think I spent just on 18 months working on that before realizing that, yeah, sort of making this sort of hard call that Halter was better off without me because it's just a... I don't think I had the passion for it. I didn't have the right skill set. You know, something we started this company thinking it was a hardware company and it was very quickly, like incredibly software heavy. Um, how, did, how did you come to terms with, I guess, that realization? Oh, I don't know. Oh, a lot of despair. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, oh, I mean, yeah, it's just like so much going on. Like you've got like these sort of financial, financial sort of decisions to make. Right. And you're also, you're kind of like, letting down your co-founder and your best mate and so you sort of have to like weigh this all up and you're like am i doing this because because i you know because it's the right thing to do or am i doing this because it's you know the easy the easy decision or you know like is what's motivated like what's what's biasing my views on on this and it's the same thing sort of with university it was like you know if i had a stuck with university if I hadn't have stuck with university, you know, I might not be sort of where I am. And um, so that was sort of weighing on me. It's like, well, I stuck with university and that sort of worked out. Should I stick with this? But no, I think it was absolutely sort of the right move and, and Holt is going really strongly with Craig at the helm and, and they just sort of killing it at the moment. So, and we're, and we're still, we're still mates. Didn't ruin that. Awesome. We neither, we neither of us have much time to catch up anymore. It's like the, it's like the, the paradox. Cause obviously I, I think being, friends and co-founders is pretty tricky like either your co-foundership will suffer or your friendship will suffer because you just end up spending way too much time together and it sort of got like to the end of that and like the, the the friendship was not exactly great and then you know so recovered that pretty well but uh, we can be friends now but we don't have time to really <laughs> catch up so it's yeah. about you know twice a year or something we'll, we'll see each other in person um, was there anything you did to leave amicably? I think the, the, the hardest decision was timing. So Craig was, I think he was off pitching in the States. That seems like a lifetime ago that you'd go overseas and pitch. Not so much at the moment. When he came, I, I decided that, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd man, the, man the helm while he was gone. And when he came back, I'd, I'd sort of break the news. So the timing was one. And then it was like giving almost all of my equity back. You know, it doesn't matter what I had vested you know, it doesn't matter what I was owed, you know, I was owed pretty much nothing because it became real apparent, you know, the, the mountainous task we had ahead versus what we'd already done. And so sort of my goal, even, even financially, my goal was like, how do I, it's not about maximizing, you know, some percentage I have in a company. It's about maximizing the value of what I take with me. And for that to work, I sort of had to say like, look, take pretty much everything back. I'll have a little share to say, thanks for my time. But ultimately, you know, parting ways amicably and sort of us still being, you know, us still being mates and be able to call each other up and, and you know, discuss issues, things going on and our respective startups is, is way more valuable than, you know, that next 3% or whatever I could have, I could have taken. Seek the win-win. Yeah, totally. It's a total win-win. Let's go into the future with you. What does Freight Fish look like in 10 years time? We should have a hundred boats on the water. Um, I think it's the most tangible one. So we're a company running cargo out in the water. We have a we have a swarm of ships. I think we'll be way more uh, we'll be way more service focused and way less engineering focused than we are now. We're just a super hardcore engineering team, and I, I think that will that will become yeah that will remain, but it won't become you know the only thing Freightfish does. Ten years is so long, man. It's a while away. Me? That's it, so long away. Um, like the, I think the well, reality what, is like I think rea- rea- the reality is like like you don't really know. Um, I think if you if you say like you know I can predict ten years time, this is what we're going to be doing exactly. I think I'd be I think I'd be a bit of a liar, and I kind of like that. I like that sort of evolutionary path that startups take. And you see it, you see it a lot. I don't think it's talked about a lot. Is that I think your perception of hard and easy at the start of a startup is usually way off the mark. You know, the things that you think are going to be hard are actually easy, and the things that you think are going to be easy are actually hard. I don't think I don't think anyone's got a really good intuition 
for that. Like, man, like we're going to go on some journey and we're going to end up somewhere. Um, but it's going to be driven by, you know, what's hard and what's easy of which like, we don't have a good, necessarily have a good um, intuition for that. Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's um, business partner says, I don't like people who do projections for me because I don't like throwing up on my desk. He's a classic. So then why don't you sort of describe the, what, what Freightfish looks like in it's in your head. How would you best describe Freightfish? Um, look, I, I think what we want is for Freightfish to be, you know, the express freight option for short haul cargo. You know, it's like, how do you, you know, someone's like, I need, I've got to move this container. Like, where do I go? And like, oh, we go to Freightfish, you know, mm. it becomes, you know, just the, just the option, you know, mm. um, and, you know, and Freightfish to the customer hopefully means, you know, it's got that sort of image of the boat and it's got that sort of, and it sort of has that sort of service attached to it. It's like, oh yeah, we'll put it on the, we'll put it on the Freightfish boat. I think that's like, that's the dream. And uh, if you can get to that, then you know, everything else is easy. How does the product work? So we have a, we've got a roughly 30 meter long hydrofoiling ship. And so a hydrofoil is just a, it's just a wing that operates underwater, an underwater wing. It can carry three 40 foot containers. So 30 meters for any Americans is a uh, hundred foot. So if you think about, if you think about it, it's largely there to sort of compete with air freight. So you think about air freight at the moment, you know, you might have a, a three-day a three-day door-to-door shipping time across, you know, uh, sort of 2,000-kilometer route. But that, you know, that three days, it spends two hours of that actually in the air between ports, which is a horribly inefficient way to move anything. The sort of freight fish product, it's hydrofoiling ship, sort of spreads out that express freight delivery from, you know, two hours to to sort of you know 20 hours port to port and then we do a whole lot on the ends to sort of make up for make up for lost time and still deliver that sort of three-day door-to-door service so we so the customer we look a lot like air freight but we can do it cheaper we can do it more flexibly and we can do it with a whole lot less greenhouse emissions which is just awesome so the hydrofoil itself is a wing that essentially lifts the boat out of the water and what is really the purpose of the hydrofoil versus just a normal boat? <laughs> yeah, um, the hydrofoil sort of does two things, right? So like in, in the water, you know, a huge portion of your drag is, is, like, is like parasitic drag. It's, it's uh, like viscous drag. So you're talking about the water creating friction against the skin of the boat. Um, mm. And as you increase in speed, you know, if you want to make a boat go faster in the water, that, that sort of just like starts to overwhelm the equation for like normal boats, you know, what you'd call like a planing boat or a semi-displacement boat starts to just like just dwarf every other form of drag. The hydrofoil sort of lifts all the skin of the boat out of the water. So it's no longer touching the water and you have a very low amount of surface area in the water, which sort of cuts your, cuts your drag substantially and just makes the whole boat you know way more efficient and so yeah, you're talking about the, the equation is you know how many how many liters of diesel do you use per to ship one ton of cargo one kilometer mm. so that's the number you kind of care about and you know and that's just sort of like like for like with planes so before your financing what exactly did you need to do what were the milestones that you needed to hit in order to prove to investors <laughs> i think our first first round was really raised on you know here's the here's the energy balance you know here's here's units of fuel in and you know what does the customer get for our unit of fuel essentially you know compared to the other options out there so some like fairly heavy engineering analysis on you know how this boat would work a bit of a concept layout and uh, and a vision of of how we might you know modify substantially sort of the world of express freight and that was pretty much it not a lot to it and then what did you promise with the seed round we promised a pretty much a working prototype of our full scale ship and that was sort of like a one-tenth scale 
which yeah so it's one of those things again where everything you thought was going to be hard about building that was easy and everything that you thought was easy was actually really hard really yeah who would have thought how do you think that is that is actually quite interesting i don't know i think i think it's really easy for people to i think when you when something is really hard you know it's like not a lot of people have sort of done it and so you don't have a lot of benchmarks of other people failing i think so you don't get to look at it and be like oh lots of people because people just don't talk about it you know because it's like it's it's stuff that just you think it's just so easy you're like oh man someone solved that and then you just sort of find that no one sort of solved one of these issues and you back yourself into this engineering corner and um and that's where you need like really good engineering teams that are gonna you know troop on when you know you've just you've backed yourself into the worst engineering corner and you've sort of got to bust your way out of it and, uh, but, but yeah, so I, I think like, I think the one thing, you know, that, ah, oh, there's a couple of things. I think one thing that just like got us real bad was just like salt water. Like you'd think everyone's, everyone's sort of sorted out salt water, but then like <laughs> the, the places where you don't think salt water will get and salt water gets and just wreck something you've made, you know, like you've got the most beautiful PCB. It's all like, should be working just right. You know, you've, put it in a waterproof case you purge the waterproof case with nitrogen to keep all the to keep all the salt water out and you know everything is just so and then you just put it on the water and something stops and you look at it and it's just got like salt water in it and you're like how how has this happened and mm. um, I, I reckon that's just a classic and you just you just you never expect it you're not you're not sitting there telling investors you know and sitting there telling blackbird like oh hey yeah so we've got to deal with a lot of salt water issues because <laughs> That's not going to sell. Um, you know, nobody cares. Um, nobody cares that you know we we ruined. You know, we probably lost three or four weeks of you know productive time to you know salt water getting on something. Like they're just going to tell me you know like well you should fix that. Obviously that was going to happen. Like ah uh, yeah. So that, uh, stuff like that. Like and it's like that times you know a hundred. Um, it just never ends. Um, and like the, the ocean is like super unforgiving in that sense. You know, if something breaks off, it's just kind of gone. Mm. You know, so water, water gets on something that just blitzes it and you just have to make it from scratch again. If something corrodes, something snaps, you know, it's just, it's like on and on and on. Um, so I think, I think that's like the real unexpectedly hard things and it's, and everything's got to be right. You know, you can't just sort of leave one piece of the puzzle that's, you know, oh, that's mostly, you know, that's mostly corrosion proof. Yeah. Mm. It's got to be like, it's got to be absolute. So yeah, I think that, that really, that really stung us. I and mean, then everything else kind of worked pretty, like pretty well. <laughs> you know, we had some other issues. You know, you've always got issues. It's hardware, you know, mm. um, nobody's running a hardware, uh, hardware company going like, oh yeah, first prototype just went out the door <laughs> and it just worked a hundred percent. It had all the features we wanted and it was just perfect uh, because it wasn't. But yeah, so we had sort of had this one tenth scale prototype, which flew around and then and it taught us a lot about why that was not going to really work super well for the full scale boat. And so we're building another bigger prototype at the moment, which is due on the water in about a month and uh, just uh, testing a different layout and, and getting a whole, a whole lot of sort of control simulation and fluid structure interaction stuff sorted out before we move on to the, to the full scale ship. Mm. It's almost predictable though, that things are going to go wrong where you don't expect them to be. Is there anything that you guys have been able to do to, I guess, operate with that flexibility? Yeah, I think like I mean, for us, it's just about you know, how how ready is our team at any given moment to completely rebuild a system. You know, like all right, you know, keep the lights on. Nobody's going home. Let's fix this. And you know, for us, that's you know having all the tools and expertise in house to go from you know like design to design to manufacture and you know, a day um, or a week, whether, I mean, I, I think take, for instance, last year, we sort of built this whole carbon fiber strut assembly and it was all based around, you know, this particular control strategy. And the strut is the sort of the bit that comes out of the bottom of the boat and sort of connects to the hydrofoil underwater. So it's a sort of vertical carbon fiber piece. And when we built this whole thing, I think about two days or three days into sort of using this thing, we sort of realized like, oh man, like, critical design flaw you know we've spent we spent 
you know, maybe the best part of a month, getting the first one together, getting the process, getting the process sorted to, to, to manufacture this thing. It's an incredibly complicated part and like a lot of, a lot going on in it. And, and then we sort of realized it wouldn't work. And so we just, you know, set the sort of one week deadline and went from, you know, the first night. So I think about 4 p.m. in the afternoon, I think we'd realize like, oh man, this part's not going to work. By sort of midnight, I think we'd, we had a new, a new design ready mm. and we had all the tool paths for the, for the CNC machines made so we could cut new molds. And the following day, we, we cut new molds and then across the sort of the last sort of four days of the week, we, we you know, laid up um, and made this like brand new part to fix it. But, you know, if you were to send that out to someone, the first thing you get back is, you know, I oh, actually were pretty busy right now. You know, if we didn't have the ability to do that in house and then you'd be like, oh, maybe eight weeks, if you give us eight weeks, we could probably have that part turned around to you. And so we've learned to be incredibly self-reliant and you know, keep the tools and keep the skills in house to sort of do that um, because eight week lead times kill hardware companies. Eight week lead times kill hardware companies. So what, what, lead times do you operate on is it just um, is it often a week or yeah like a, a week is good um, yeah. you can you can turn something around in a week because you know it's not like you in the hardware company you don't you don't build a part or design a part should i say send it out have it made bring it back and put it on and you know it just works you know you, you sort of got to bring it in you've got to test it um you know and if something is wrong and something goes wrong in that first test you've got to sort of make it all again so if, um you've got an eight week lead time even if you're even if you planned really well and you get that part back and not every part comes back wrong you know it's quite infrequent but as soon as one part comes back wrong and now you've got to make it all again and now you've got a stacked you know eight week lead time so your first mm. you've burnt eight weeks waiting for the part you maybe test it for a, a few days and then you go oh let's make that again and now you've got like 16 weeks of, you know, trying to have this like system. It just doesn't work. You know, that's, you know, that's what, like a quarter of your year um, gone. Uh, it, just, it just doesn't make any sense. So like, you've got to be, you've got to be doing um, a lot of work in house to sort of make up that. I mean, all the other option is just to pay someone, you know, outsource, outsource it and pay someone an ungodly, an ungodly amount of money to, to make it sooner, which is, I mean, that's one way to do it. I just don't think it's got the resilience of just doing it yourself. Mm. What do you think? So often then product managers are falling into this trap of these eight week lead times. Is there anything other than brute force that is helping you to do it in much shorter lead times? Um, well, I think in, in a way it is kind of brute force. Um, yeah. I, it's just, it's just a, um, it's a culture thing though, really. You know, it's who are the people you're hiring and how are you making sure that they they learn the skills necessary to, to sort of turn things around mm. really fast. And part of that is, is you know, having a really clear understanding between you of, you know, what to prioritize. You know, you don't spend... You don't spend three weeks, you know, trying to perfect the last 5% of a design. You know, it's the classic sort of 80-20 rule where once it's 80% good, it goes to manufacture. It goes to prototyping and trying to really drum that in. But it, like, it is kind of brute force, you know. Like, I think it's probably one of the hard things about it. There's no sort of, there's no sort of hack to make it work. You just got to do it. Maybe the hack is finding finding the right talent then. So what, what are some of the most important qualities you look for in people that join Freightfish? I think like determination and resilience are probably sort of like one and two, you know, determination being, you know, like, are you here to sort of help us get this done, sort of join the mission and resilience being, you know, like in the face of, you know, almost certain defeat, you know, what do you do to turn yourself around and, and get the project back on track? And I think like often those skills are, are gained from, you know, like personal projects, you know, people doing things in their own time. I think it's usually where you find those. It's they've done some sort of weird project um, because I think with like, you know, someone straight out of university or has never worked on their own sort of stuff, you can always, you can always sort of hand in a B, you know, if you want an A, 
but it hasn't quite gone your way. You know, you can hand in a B, but you just can't do that at, you know, at any startup and, and freight fish especially. You can't just sort of hand in what you got because a B is a fail. And so, and so you find people who've worked on their own projects and have sort of been, you know, they've spent their own money, taken their own time and, you know, tried to bring some sort of weird project, whatever it is to, you know, whether it's, you know, a project car, whether it's, you know, drones, whether it's, you know, pieces of software, they've spent their own money and time trying to get it going. And they've had to learn what it's, what it's like to, you know, not be able to hand in a B. Those are the people that really make it and make Freakfish tick. Can you tell me, uh, So I want to double click on your employees and ask you about what induction at Freightfish looks like. Yeah. Um, it's something that we're like working on pretty um, heavily at the moment. I don't want to, I don't want to give too much away because part of, part of the, part of the, <laughs> part of the induction, part of the induction is, is surprise, <laughs> you know, um, mm. I think like that's the first one you've got to sort of tick off is, you know, subverting the expectations mm. because if you come in and you think, you know, what something's going to be, um, you and can prepare. You, you can, <laughs> you can prepare and like, well, I think if you come in and you, and you have an expectation like you come into a new job and, and you expect it to be a certain way. Um, and then if something's, you know, not that way, you know, it's, it doesn't match the picture in your head that sort of creates a bit of a, like a bit of a, a disconnect, but, but it's always going to happen, right? You're never going to build this perfect picture of what your new job's going to be like and then sort of turn up and, and, oh yeah, I was just totally right. So you're always going to have that disconnect. So I think like our sort of solution to that is well, it's something that we're, we're working on over time. We haven't necessarily done with all of our current employees, but we're working sort of towards is, yeah, how do you, how do you sort of make the disconnect so big um, so early on you sort of break all those expectations you know like you disassociate yourself from the employees like the new team members prior expectations does that sort of mm -hmm. make sense like it's kind of like shock them into forgetting everything they know <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah i think um, i've seen it done incredibly well where have you seen it done so there's this there's this I think it's, it's a worldwide organization called Outward Bound, um, actually, that they sort of do this sort of, you know, like sort of teach, I don't know how you describe it. Essentially you, you go off and you hang out in the, hang out in the bush and you hang out in, in the water and learn to sail and whatever for, so it's 21 days, like nonstop, no phones. The only way you can communicate with the outside world is, you know, letters and, and, and you sort of get there. And, you know, everyone's sort of nervous and whatever. And like, and sort of job number one is that they, they make you put on your, put on your, like your gym gear and then you roll down to the sort of silty beach and you roll around in the wet, silty sand. And then you go for a swim in your clothes and then you run to the cold shower and you have a cold outdoor shower. And it's sort of just this like, you know, and they do this, you know, right through the year in summer and in the middle of winter when the water's, you know, 10 degrees or whatever. And it's sort of just like, it just snaps everyone out of, you know, forget, you know, forget what you thought this was going to be. This is what this is. Um, and although, you know, we, we can't just, we can't just do that necessarily as uh, a company and that works for very specific reasons. It's that kind of, that sort of snap, you know, you wake up, you're here that I think is just like super powerful. Um, you know, any doubts you have just sort of go out the window. You're like, Oh man, this is gonna, this is gonna suck and be great. You know? Yeah. I think they do it. They do it incredibly well. Your location is uniquely enabled to put people into shock. You're in New Zealand, Marsden point. <laughs> Why did you choose Marsden point? Yeah. So I suppose I should introduce Marsden point. It's, so big city everyone knows in New Zealand is Auckland. Your next big city north of Auckland is Whangarei. And that's sort of, that's already a pretty small town. And we're about half an hour south of Whangarei, sort of situated just right behind Whangarei's port. And 
So this sort of general area is called Bream Bay and specifically we're in Marsden Point, which is home to pretty much a sort of a lumber, a lumber plant, a, a refinery and a port. Our next door neighbours and a dairy farm. And um, so it's kind of an odd spot to be for a startup. But for us, like number one is, you know, we spend all of our lives designing things that go on the water and being really close to the open ocean just allows us to test way more. It allows us to go out and experience it for ourselves in our own time um, and sort of just live, live the lifestyle that sort of the ocean provides. Um, so yeah, we're, we're two minutes from a white sandy beach, which never has anybody on it. We're about two minutes as well from the nearest slipway where we put our prototypes in. I think the only tricky thing is, you know, sort of people come up here to sort of take on this sort of crazy high tech startup job in the middle of nowhere. And the type of people that we sort of typically bring up from Auckland haven't necessarily lived in a small town before (laughs) Mm. and life's a little different. And, um, and it just takes a little while. And I think like at the moment, the, the joy is we've sort of got this like big enough community you know, within Freight Fish now where we can make our own fun. But I think you get really shocked the first time, you know, you leave work at, you know, nine o'clock because you've been working away on something that you just absolutely want to get done. And then you go to grab some takeaways on the way home. There's no Uber Eats here. You've actually got to go pick up your own food, <laughs> like, like the dark ages. And you realize that the, you know, Fish and chip shop is closed at closed at you know eight pm. You're like, what? Like, what do you mean I can't get food? This is, <laughs> this is unreal. I think that was like that was Jerry. The supermarket closed at eight as well, so you can't go there. And so you just go home and and be hungry and look in the fridge. Um, so yeah, I think that's like it's stuff like that. But yeah, but then you also sort of get this thing where, you know, suddenly you're trying to find you know, you know how do you keep yourself occupied in the in your free time? So you know, like all the all the team have sort of joined the, the local squash club. And so we all go play squash together. We've got like, you know, we, we have craft night. When's our, no, move to Tuesday night. Tuesday night, craft night. We all just go to someone's house and the boys knit and, and there's a bit of sewing that goes on. Someone makes wow. some food. We hang out. Like, yeah. It's, and when you come up here, you know that, you know, maybe you'll be leaving some friends behind in Auckland. They're only two hours down the road, but you're going to be joining like this awesome community of people who sort of, you know, can teach you things and you can teach them things and you'll sort of have a ball together. I say right now it's like a tricky time where there's, you know, there's, there's 12 of us and, and the community is quite small. In other words, how do you know what you're building will add value yeah. to people? I think we've got this, we've got this real, you know, like we're, we're like a flying machine company, which means we're sort of working tightly up against some, some pretty heavy, you know, engineering principles that you just, some of them you just can't move. And so you've got this sort of interesting interaction between, you know, what is possible to build and then who, who, who wants to pay, you know, what is possible to build? (laughs) Mm. I don't know if that flows. When you look at routes, you know, like what route are we operating on? And it becomes, what are the routes with the biggest, you know, the biggest deficit in sort of, you know, they're paying too much for freight um, and the freight service is bad because if we can reduce the cost and improve, you know, the quality of service, that's like a super easy sell. Mm. Just reducing cost is a harder sell because the freight world is strange and there are some pretty hefty um, sort of contractual agreements between different parties. But if you can sort of do that sort of, you know, it's a better service and it costs you less. It's that's easy. And then cherry on top is always, you know, is it cherry on top, the icing on top? I'm really bad with terms of phrase. And is, you know, that, you know, it's better for the environment. But often people are so removed from the environmental impact of their freight that they don't necessarily think about that. Um, so usually it's, yeah, it's quality and price first. Can you paint a picture of what it was like to see the prototype work in the way that you had envisioned for the very first time? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It was totally, 
is totally nuts. Like, and it still is totally nuts. I, I wish it, it's, we've sort of broken it down and it's not flying that prototype at the moment, but I wish we could still take it out occasionally because it's just like, yeah, it's kind of, it's unbelievable. I think, I think the, the trouble is, I think like success is such like a, you know, a successful test flight is such a fleeting feeling. Um, you only get it for a moment. You don't get to really get to ride the high for that long, you know. So you do something, it works, awesome. That's what we were, you know, we were always envis envisaging success, you know. Like you, you don't go into this thinking like, oh, this isn't going to work. Of course, we've always been thinking, you know, this is going to work. So when it, when it flies the first time and it just does what it's supposed to do, you know, yeah, it's awesome. But it's also largely like drowned out by relief. Mm. But I think that's like, I tell people this at work as well as, you know, the team is like, you know, it's the disappointments that stick with you way longer. You really get to, you really get to milk those disappointments um, because disappointment isn't something that you're preparing yourself for. You're always preparing yourself for victory. And so when you get disappointed or something doesn't work, like that hits you hard and then that will stick around for weeks. Um, and I think breaking yourself away from that is, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to claim I'm, just awesome at that, you know, breaking my way and myself away from that feeling of defeat. I think people who can do it, are like, yeah, you know, it's a huge skill to have if you can, and and if you can, you know, make yourself love the love the victory. But I think, I think across the board, you'll probably find that with people is that there's not much time to celebrate. It's super hard, especially in a goal-oriented world where. If you're trying to reach a goal, you're constantly in either perpetual motion or, or failure in a way until you get this fleeting moment of success and then the cycle begins again. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is which is hard. I mean, if you could crack that, if you could crack that and make that feeling <laughs> that feeling of success stick around forever, like, oh, you'd be, the, you'd be the happiest person alive. You'd have the happiest team alive if you could, if you could do that. But largely, it's just a whole bunch of you despairing just what you get. I don't know. It's maybe it's maybe a bit dark, but but yeah, it is. It, it is. It's tough. What are some of the engineering principles you find yourself leaning on the most? Oh, well, I think I think it's all the ones we. It's all the ones you don't learn at uni. I think like sh structure of testing is probably number one, and it's. Uh, it's not really an engineering principle, but you have, you know, the way you, the way you test something and the way you prove to yourself and prove to the project that the work you've done is up to standard and the way you communicate that is like so important and particularly communicating to, you know, if someone's, if someone's reviewing your work or testing your work, the way that you respond to that communication is like critical. And so I think that's like, that's number one. Like How does that work at Pryfish? It's an evolving thing. Mm. <laughs> no, it's I mean like a test session for us is uh, we've gotten a lot tighter on it over over time. So it starts where you know usually you've you've come in after a day. There's some problem with the boat or like some minor issue or a major issue. Who knows? You know you've designed something that hasn't worked. You come in, you debrief, you go through the data, and you decide on a fix together. Delegate out who's who's sort of responsible for what part of the fix and then you do like a, a pre pre-flight so you know before before you call for the test session you sort of do your pre pre-flight which is you making sure that your fix that you've made for the boat solves a problem and then you oh sorry should i say yeah it's all it solves the problem that you had and the boat is not is not broken in any other way so if you've made mm. firmware and it breaks the boat um, that's bad. So you fix that, and then we call the test session. The before the test session, the boat gets pre-flighted, which is you know going through all the tests again. So you've already done them once. You do them again to make sure that you know, you know on the at the time of testing, the boat is ready to go. Um, you have a briefing. You all get together, assign roles, work out you know what mission control needs to know, what the test team needs to know, and then you all you know the prototype and the chase boat sends it to the water, jumps in the water, and sort of that's like. And then you test and the process repeats and that's sort of like on repeat, you know, on like, like a sort of two day cycle in the middle mm -hmm. of a, in the middle of a heavy test session, which is like, gets pretty, it gets pretty draining. So the least it's, it's, that's like a hard cycle to maintain for any long amount of time because 
you know, you might be staring at a screen in a, in a cold warehouse full of tools trying to find some inspiration in a piece of data, you know, they're just searching for something, you know, something to explain what's gone wrong. And, you know, that can get pretty, that can get pretty training and then sort of communicating that out. And, you know, you've even got this, you know, you've found something wrong with the boat and, you know, someone's designed that thing and they don't necessarily think that there's a problem with it. So it's how do you becomes a sort of, how do you create the environment where there's something wrong with your work? You know, that's okay. Don't defend it. Just like fix it. You know? Now it's time to listen to a Blackbird general partner, Samantha Wong. Hey Mason, how are you? Good. How are you? Good, thank you. <laughs> it's good to hear. Thank you so much for joining me on the potty. I wanted to start off with robots as a service. When did our robots as a service theme start? And what are some of the key bets Blackbird was making on our first investment? So the first robots as a service investment you'd have to say it was Zooks and it predated my time. So bear that in mind. And I don't think we called it, it this is our thesis, mm. Robots as a Service. It was, we fell in love with the vision, the ambitiousness of what they were attempting and wanted to back um, KK, Tim Kentley Clay, Jesse Levinson to uh, give it a go. And so we wrote a 250K check into that. Could have been 350K if... If I'm, if I'm not wrong. And I guess uh, what we even mean um, by robots as a service, if I can explain it, is you build a robot not to sell, so not to sell like a tractor or a car or anything like that, but to operate it as a service and to charge customers for, I guess, a fractional use of, of that service. So in the case of Zooks, you're building an autonomous vehicle to operate it as a fleet of vehicles similar to Uber or Lyft or, or as a competitor to those businesses. And the beauty of that business is that 70% of the cost of an Uber ride right now is the human being driving the vehicle. And so if you take that cost out and you, you have a, a robot doing the driving instead, you have all these other bit of benefits that are unlocked. You know, Qantas Lounge on Wheels is sort of how we imagined it um, and thought, you know, th this team had a credible chance of actually realising a vision that ambitious. Um, so we really loved that insight of Zooks's and it sort of carried with us into subsequent events and uh, investments and, and, and definitely we saw that potential with, with Freightfish. And that's what led us to, to make um, an investment in, in Freightfish, which is a hydrofoil freight company. And, and, a, and our third one that also falls into that thematic is August Robotics, which builds all sorts of different ro robots to operate as a service, to do the work that humans um, shouldn't really be doing, that is dangerous, dirty or dull work. Dehumanising is another word I like to use for some of this work. But yes, so, so that would be the third in that thematic. What do you love about Freightfish, Sam? Well, I guess what I love about, I mean, there are lots of things to love about Freightfish, like the actual boats are just amazing. And if anyone um, who's listening to this podcast has seen 10 yet, there is just a, an absolutely thrilling, stunning sort of 10-minute sequence of hydrofoil racing that, you know, really captures, I guess, the excitement and potential of, of, of these types of boats. But I guess I love the sheer originality of, of the idea that, you know, for, you know, most of history, we've transported things, you know, first by wheel and then by, by water and, and, then, and then train and, and, and then air. But, you know, why not create a third way for freight to move between sort of slow, cheap sea freight and fast but super expensive and environmentally unfriendly air freight by using water and using or removing, I guess, the drag from traditional boats to move things across water much faster than previously using much less fuel and therefore being both cheaper and faster. And that's what you look for in venture investing, right? You, you're looking for 10x faster and 10x or 10x better and 10x cheaper. So that's, that's super inspiring. But also I think, I guess one benefit you could almost say with, with Freightfish above something like Zooks is that you can actually get started with one vehicle, one boat. You could never start, you know, a, a ride hailing service or an autonomous taxi service with one vehicle. You can start freight service with one boat because it just plugs into existing supply chains. You could just one identify one route that really makes a lot of sense for the type of boat you're building 
and plug into the existing freight forwarding or what have you supply chains and, and, and prove it out on that. So therefore the capital requirements for a, for, for a company doing that are much less than say an autonomous vehicle company. Mm. And so Sam, they're starting from Marsden, Marsden's point, which is a small town in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Can you build something this ambitious from New Zealand? Well, what's really interesting is that they originally started in in Auckland and it was actually harder to um, find and retain talent in Auckland because Auckland is super expensive (laughs) um, to live in and and I've moved from Sydney and and I can honestly say I don't get spare change from, from, from doing the move and traffic can be pretty bad and they need space to build boats and so it's not, you know, downtown Auckland that they were building out of. And so they were, I think, a bit nervous about moving HQ up to Whangarei Marsden Point, which is sort of three or four hours north of Auckland. But I think they were really surprised by the fact that basically people wanted to move um, out of Auckland and stop paying a lot of money for for not very much. So they mm. haven't had any trouble hiring there. And I think the other thing is that there was a, was a big naval base where they were actually able to tap into some talent in, in the local region, which is really awesome. And I think, you know, with COVID and so on, I think that thematic is going to keep playing out. People, you know, if they don't have to live, you know, in dense urban areas, will probably choose to live in places where the lifestyle is a, a little bit better, you know, provided they can... They can um, do work and, and that's definitely the case for freight fish up at Fungare. Why would you want to build a company from New Zealand? Why wouldn't you? I, I think is the, is probably the better question. Well I think in the case of freight fish there is a there is a good reason um, why you would build a hydrofalling company here and, it's and actually that is so obviously stunning. the America yeah, well, and it's also, yeah, is so beautiful. It is. It's like, it's gorgeous, right? And so if you could kind of um, build a new category leading technology company for, from there, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you, right? You'd, yeah. you'd stick your hand up at any minute. And, but I guess um, the America's Cup history is really important to note there, which is basically, you know, the Team New Zealand snuck a win through, you know, innovating on hydrofoils. And, and so there actually is like very deep pockets of hydrofoiling talent and expertise here in New Zealand. And, you know, at the end of the race, like every year or, you know, how, you know at, at certain cycles, I think that they're, they're only contracted for um, relative short uh, contracts. Um, you know, they have all this expertise and then they're out of a job and in Auckland. And so it's, you know, it's a perfect place to kind of be pick, snapping up some of that literally world-class talent on the very technology that Freightfish needs. Mm. I mean, I, even during COVID, I've seen people fleeing it to the coasts um, in Australia. Have you seen anything like that in New Zealand yet? There's a lot of expats returning, and I would yeah. say that has the downside of that is that they're returning from places like you know London, New York, Hong Kong, and they are totally price insensitive, and so a bad <laughs> rental market has gotten worse. But yeah, I mean, you know, m- most um, people don't dream of growing up or bringing up. If you're from New Zealand or Australia, you don't dream of you know your kids growing up in, in downtown Manhattan or anything, and, and they do want to return eventually, and they're just looking for the right opportunity and the right timing, and 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 certainly like this moment in time for, for, for better or worse and mostly worse is, you know, is, is catalyzing a lot of people to think about returning. And I'm also, you know, regularly getting, you know, LinkedIn messages or Twitter messages from um, people with no connection with New Zealand who just love the country and lo- love the values and, and would, would like to, you know, live here, you know, asking me about, about jobs in, in startups and, and how to get involved. And I think this is, you know, a golden opportunity for some of the sort of, you know, non-dominant tech ecosystems to be attracting this global talent right now. Mm. There's a lot of IP and, and in many of these hardware companies, there's a huge amount of IP that often founders are reluctant to share with others. How do, you, how do founders sort of balance the share the ambition of what they're doing with the entire world versus let's keep everything in-house, let's move st- let's move quietly and still attract the same ambition. What have you seen with Zooks? And I guess, can you give any advice for founders thinking about how secretive they should be? Yeah, I would actually say like for hardware companies, you know, there's actually less risk potentially with, with sharing more than a software company. You know, you can share the, 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 you know, what of what you're doing, like, what are you building? Why are you building it? You could even share some of the how you were doing it to some degree. And that still wouldn't be sufficient for someone else to, to, 
you know, actually go and build the thing. Um, that's less true in software, right? If you know kind of like the, the why and the what and, you know, it's not that difficult to create the actual product. But, you know, in my experience, like attracting the best talent involves inspiring them and, and, and kind of getting the image in their minds in such a way that they just can't forget it. They just can't shake it from their imagination. You've just captured it and planted a seed and they have to come and work for you. And it's very hard to do that, right? If you don't, you don't paint the picture and you you don't give them enough information and particularly if you're working in, you know, area of their doubters or skeptics, like, you know, you know, Zooks and level five autonomy and, and so on. Like if you don't, if you don't sort of share enough, then people just, you know, can't I guess dispel the doubt in their own minds about about how how you'll achieve it but yeah I think you know the best talent follow a a really well articulated vision and one that's articulated with a a sufficient degree of detail to to, I guess demonstrate the quality of the thinking behind it. Mm. What do you think some of the challenges are facing hardware companies? Oh I mean you know hardware is hard. It is less hard than it used to be. But I'd say, I think one of the big challenges that you can have in the early years is is just around hiring and team. And I think I have some early hypotheses about why that might be. So if you think about software, you know, we've had, I guess, two decades of, you know, investment in the space, in the frameworks, in different languages. So, you know, 20 years ago, you would, you know, need you know, a very specialist person to set up and configure servers and um, release launches to production. You need another specialist person who would work just on front-end technologies and code HTML and CSS and nothing else. And you'd have someone else who, you know, just did back-end technologies like like Java. And you kind of needed these three teams to work together to produce a single software product. Nowadays, most development teams are reasonably full-stack can do enough of the DevOps will rely on you know cloud and and can manage the sort of infrastructure that way you know can do you know f- using front end technologies like JavaScript to sort of build build apps and know enough about sort of databases to to kind of essentially build a full product themselves. So the size of the team has come way down and the speed at which you can bring something to market has has gone way up. I think in hardware not we're not quite on the other side of this transition. So you need, it turns out, you know, in hardware, there's a lot of software involved and it's actually still reasonably rare to find mechatronics engineers who have sufficient software skills. It sort of doesn't, it's it's a reasonably new thing at universities to require that mechatronics engineers do some software. So I guess if you're a startup hiring, if you hire on the junior side, the chances are you'll get someone who, who sort of, is a bit of a Swiss army knife in that way. So it can do both the hardware and the software, but they're going to be reasonably inexperienced and probably haven't hired before or recruited or managed a team. And so, you know, they may struggle, you know, becoming managers themselves and, and building out a team. On the other end of the spectrum, if you hire senior talent, they're probably coming out of you know, um, a reasonably traditional industry, a very waterfall type of industry, maybe medical devices or white goods or appliances, something like that. And and I'm, I'm speaking of, you know, Australia, New Zealand versus, you know, somewhere, you know, like Shenzhen or Silicon Valley or something like that. And, and, and so those folks, you know, would be much more experienced and know how to build teams and see around corners in terms of quality assurance and, and, and releases and, and, and so on. But they're probably not going to have software skills because that just wasn't what, you know, a university taught you, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And you're in these large teams in these big companies where there's sort of still like software companies 20 years ago, there's like, you know, three different teams to build one product. So I think they are some of the challenges. How do you find these just right Swiss army knife, you know, people to work in hardware startups on the product side, you know, in that sort of C to series A stage, you know, beyond that, you can you can diversify and specialize and have these these people who just do one or the other. But in those early stages, you ideally want to jack all, all trades and reasonably rare still. Mm. What do you think? So you've talked about sort of the, the skill lens of talent. What do you think are some of the, I guess, the the qualities or the attitudes that are needed in this type of business? 
Well, I think, you know, you know, all early stage startups need basically the same sort of things in early hires, you know, enthusiasm and commitment to the vision and the mission, flexibility and adaptability, a willingness to sort of try things and kill things that don't, that don't work. So a sort of really flexible mindset. I think attitude is such a big part of it. I guess, humility around trying things and, and just bringing a lot of energy to, to their job and, you know, ability to kind of do things that aren't within the job description and not, you know, and, and not resent that, I suppose. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love for you to send us an email. Wildhearts at blackbird.vc. I hope you'll subscribe. And if you like the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you left us a review. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you in a fortnight.